Thank you for joining us on our journey here to preserve the history of mixed martial arts. When I wanted to take on this project, I needed help. I brought in one of my favorite matchmakers, Miguel Iterate, and the MMA detective, Mike Davis. So to do this, we've been able to preserve history. Welcome and enjoy. Hey, Miguel Iterate back here on the Lights Out podcast. That's Mike Davis, the MMA detective, and we're here for another MMA deep dive. And uh, Chris Lytle, I'm not sure if Chris is joining us. He's off doing Chris Lytle things. He's off whiskey or bare knuckle <laughs> or pancreas. I don't know what he's doing, but he's off doing something. He may join us. He may not, but definitely joining us. Mike, who we got? We got a return customer. Well, we got a fellow Chicago native, Stefan Bonner, uh, you know, by proxy through Las Vegas. And we're going to finish up his, his mixed martial arts career. We started with the before UFC, and now we're going to kind of watch his trajectory through the UFC and through, uh, you know, fighting past a contract that was so desirable at the time, but maybe kind of turned out to be, you know, one of those cars that, uh, you know, is probably getting like eight miles a gallon. So yeah, I think, I think, I think he's, he's a guy that, definitely has a unique and interesting run. I mean, who else has been through that path? You know, he so was like the first. Yeah. He, they broke, he broke so many, you know, he was there for so many unique things. So definitely looking forward to uh, getting into that with, with, with Stefan Bonner, just for people lights out fans continue to like and subscribe. The first episode with Stefan Bonner is episode 70. And this is going to be episode 78. So kind of a quick return, but uh, definitely worth it with Stefan Bonner, Mike. Absolutely. So uh, February 5th, I'm in Tampa, Florida, world-class grappling. Um, please sign up through Smooth Camp. I'll be hosting. we got a couple other things that uh, I'm going to be making the announcement probably within the next 10 days. So ladies and gentlemen, please like, share, subscribe. We can only grow with your help. We're not liking. We're not sharing. We are already subscribed. So we need everybody's help. So please, 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 our growth, we're, we're looking at it. It's, it's awesome. So, and, and do another thing I look forward to, another Chris Brennan follow-up. Dude, on fire. It's so good. So ladies and gentlemen, without further ado, Stefan Bonner. Miguel Adorati, Mike Davis, the Lights Out Podcast is back. Chris Lytle is off on a mission, but he uh, may or may not join us here, but we have been joined by Stefan Bonner. And uh, Mike, take part it two. away. Mr. Bonner is on part two, and uh, we're grateful to have him, obviously. Thank you very much, yeah. Steph, for joining us. Good to see you guys again. All right. So, so, Stefan, here's the thing. you We ended with your Force Griffin fight, episode the Ultimate Fighter, on the last interview. And you come back with a contract. You know, everyone's thinking you probably have big money at this time. Um, when in reality is you've got big fame, but the money you still have to go and earn. So you were one of the trainers at the Gold Coast on the north side of Chicago. Um, how long were you there for? And when did you realize you, it was time for you to leave? I got that job uh, right when I graduated college in 2000. Um, Moved uh, moved up there at a little studio apartment in Lincoln Park. Ah, oh, what a great time, you know, reflecting on it, like, feel like Al Bundy looking back on his high school days, you know, <laughs> those days in that studio apartment. Had some good times there. That was in 2000. Um, 
So um, had a, a good gig going there. I liked it there. They liked me. Um, I had a lot of clients. And after that fight with Forrest, you know, I only walked home with five grand. So I, you know, didn't quit or, or stop working by any means. You know, I just went back to business as usual and kept training. And I just gradually over the next two years, like light my client load as a, you know, you'd win a fight and a payday would come in. You wouldn't need to uh, work as hard or see as many people. So I stayed there until I moved to Vegas in 07 um, at the Gold Coast Multiplex. Uh, I just said that by the time uh, before I left there, by the end of it, um, I was just working part time in 07. Uh, just had a handful of clients and uh, then it was time to pack up and move out to Vegas. Yeah, that's, you know, it's uh, one of those things where sometimes people kind of kind of nudge you to go because you're so used to your routine. And, you know, locally, your level of fame at that point was, I, I have to imagine it was kind of almost unmanageable at certain like, times. Yeah, they kept me busy. Like after that fight with Forrest, me and him went around for the next year doing PR together. We were always together, always hanging out. Um, we did some work for Spike TV where they hired us to, you know, subsequent seasons of The Ultimate Fighter, write like breakdowns of each episode and have, um, you know, little uh, video reviews. It was called He Said, He Said. Um, so that was a lot of fun, actually. Um, got to be creative and you know, build up the spiketv.com website. A lot of the work I did was for that. Um, and later with the aftermath, uh, I, I worked for them again, this time without Forrest, but that was like 2010. Uh, let me, so let me clear this up. So when you go to Vegas and you're shooting the tough series, you're getting 500 bucks a week, I think is, is what they gave you, right? Like that, that yep. was that. So, I mean, I'm going to guess you were doing better at that little gym in, in, in Illinois, you know, than 500 yeah. bucks a week. And then, then you fight basically a historic, perhaps UFC saving fight. And they look you in the face with a $5,000 check and that's it. Yeah. I mean, I didn't, I mean, that's what I was supposed to get. That's, that was the deal. So it wasn't okay. like, Oh man, I'm only getting like, it was something like, no, it's, from, like, um, at the beginning of the ultimate fighter this is how it works you make it to the finals and sure. you know it's 10 grand to win it and five you lose uh -huh. yeah, and it's the first uh, one so you know who knows how it was going to go and stuff but let me ask you now so you said they sort of created subsequent uh opportunities for you and forest and publicity and stuff like that were they giving you some type of appearance fees for that, or were they just enforcing their contract? Well, right? Spike like, TV, hey, you got to do pub. Yeah, Spike TV paid us. Uh, okay. Like me and Forrest, when we worked for them for the subsequent seasons, the next couple Ultimate Fighters, yeah, they were paying us, so we were getting you know work from Spike. I mean, that wouldn't have happened without the tough. So that's kind of a little bit of payback afterwards. Yeah, we were hot, and let's take advantage of their PR and let's build the Spike TV website and. Um, get these guys you know we had good chemistry together so yeah they uh played off that now you so don't have was, to say if you don't want something that it. normally probably most guys wouldn't have the opportunity to do but you know we were engaging and uh good together in terms of humorous and you had that uh great oh, fight, it worked. so it made it sense worked. It, it worked it was good well, i was gonna get asked i mean you don't have to give details or a number or anything like that but 
I imagine even though Spike was paying you that it wasn't like, you know, retirement money or anything like that. Was it decent? Was it a good bump? Yeah. I mean, for what I was doing, yeah, it was decent. I mean, the easiest money I had made. That's fair. That's fair. It's easier than fighting Forrest for 5K. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah, It was decent. But yeah, until that 24 grand came in from beating Sam Hoger, that that really um, let me exhale. You know, that gave me some breathing room. Um, That was a nice payday. Um, And then off that, after that, uh, you know, that, that contract, it's a little deceptive, you know, a six figure contract. You're 12 and 12 for your first three fights, you know, then, then it goes 16 and 16 and then it goes 22 and 22. So it's a nine fight deal and you win all your fights. It adds up to uh, six figures, but not if you lose, you know? Yeah. And uh, Shay, one thing that's really a shame um, is guys who've won the ultimate fighter, Fought a couple fights, uh, like, um, you know, maybe two tough losses and they get cut. They go have to fight outside the ultimate fighter, get a couple wins, and then they get rehired, but at a smaller salary. You know, they, they, their payday, they're not back to that tough contract, which isn't, it's not the greatest contract anyway. So I remember when Efren Escudero told me how that happened to him, it just broke my heart. Yeah, I think Mac Mac Danzig also fell into that category as well. He had a you know a little run in the UFC, but yeah, he never really was able to capitalize on it. Um, you know, one of the shocking things is it's I, I be, well here, the UFC is just establishing themselves with that fight. I mean, they are in a monstrous money pit of a hole, and that fight obviously helped them dig their way out of it. And um, you know, they also created other opportunities with the WEC and stuff like that. So. The money not, might not have been immediate, but it's certainly, you know, they, they certainly try to give it to you later on, you know, in different ways. Yeah, I was uh, fortunate enough to get a lot of work from the UFC, and I even did merchandising and made some money that way, making T-shirts for them as well. That's good. That's good. So August 6, 2005, UFC fight night, you score up with Sam Hoger. You're obviously a fan favorite right now. Um Hoger wasn't real happy with how he was portrayed on the ultimate fighter, but then comes in with Muhammad Ali type rhymes in regards to your fight <laughs> against yourself. Um, did, what were you expecting walking into that? Oh man, that was a rough one. Uh, that was yeah. at Thomas and Mac arena and on the elevator ride up to get announced, like my stomach started rumbling and, I ended up um, having some sort of food poisoning and was really sick after that for a few days. But it started right there uh, when they were announcing me. And uh, it, it was a tough fight. One time I was on, funniest thing ever in a fight, I had full mount on them and I'm landing, you know, ground and pounding them from a full mount. He was able to tie my wrists and I, I fucking sharded on him. And he goes, through his mouthpiece, he goes, God damn, man, did you shit yourself? <laughs> you like that, Hoger? <laughs> um, you had Mark Delagrante. You started on Hoger for the full mount, man. That's for stealing on the out show. On it. He called me out on it during the fight. <laughs> You, you know, that's that's you know, in the middle of getting his head pounded, he, he knew that it might have been a little messy. That's that's a yeah. battle. <laughs> he smelled it. 
down. Damn, when you shit yourself? Oh, I'll never forget that. You hit uh, Mark Delagrate in your corner and Carlson Sr. Was Delagrate uh, a newer coach for you? Yeah, I had started training with him after the show. I'd go out to Boston. I'd drive the minivan out there, and uh, it was great. <laughs> he let me stay in the basement of the gym. There's a bedroom. And, like, that's why I was just there to learn Muay Thai. That was relatively new to me as a martial art, really. I'm the ultimate fighter. So when I first with Ganyao Fairtex is like when I first started officially learning Muay Thai, you know, I knew how to throw kicks and knees and stuff, but uh, I never trained that as a martial art, really. You know, I go kickbox with people, but just straight up Thailand Muay Thai, um, you know, fell in love with it and got in the Muay Thai phase where, you know, I love the, the play the music while I was training to jump on the tires, uh, you know, to neck wrestle, to, you know, tie clinch with people and touch spar and uh, just how they do it in Thailand and uh, fell in love with it as a martial art. Yeah, that's good. So why did you choose, choose De La Grate? I was friends with Kenny Florian and, uh, you know, his Muay Thai was pretty good on the show. He stopped leaving with that elbow and he said he had a good coach. So, you know, why don't you come out and train? And, you know, everyone says that, but you know, a um, few people take you up on the offer, but I took him up on the offer and uh, said, what the hell? What do I got to lose? You know, uh, I'll take the minivan out there, stay in uh, mm -hmm. Delagrade's gym and just eat, sleep and shit Muay Thai. So, <laughs> so you had a minivan and you had no children at the time. Am I correct? Yeah, that was like, uh, you know, my my first uh well, probably my best. My previous car was from my ex-girlfriend. I bought it off her. So it was like my first official car that I bought. Uh, you know, although like growing up, I had a hand-me-down. But that was like, you know, my first big uh, car that cost over, you know, over a couple grand. You know? mm -hmm. So I think it's like 10 grand for that minivan. Uh, got it used. And yeah, pulled the seats out of the back and had a little blow-up mattress there and it was just perfect for uh, a road home. trips driving around I, you know if i need to power nap i'd be dozing off i'd you know just go back there had my little dvd player that was before technology was so good but you know it was something i'd chill back there had a little fridge so uh it was a lot of fun you know that's that's pretty funny yeah 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 that's good uh, January 16, I, 2001. I'd like to do that again. <laughs> I, yeah. I wouldn't mind do that again. Getting another minivan and, you know, doing road trip. Maybe just uh, yeah, do sets at comedy clubs. Yeah, talk about, you know, like Mike said, starting off the segment, it's like, talk about, like, your fame not being... Matching like, your wealth. Yeah, equal to your bank account. You know what I mean? It's like, if you know, I mean, it's cool that... And, you know, 10 grand for a minivan. Hey, I don't have it, you know, so that's cool. I, I'm not putting it down, but after the TV show, I don't think people would have had that image of you. Did that ever strike you at that moment or were you still kind of happy walking your martial path? Like, what do you think? Yeah, honestly, I never really cared. Um, wasn't something I thought about, like, oh, I really deserve more money out of this. I was just really happy to be a part of the ride. And, you know, I, I signed up for it. I knew what the contract was. I knew how much I was getting. 
Um, so it, it didn't, it didn't matter that much to me. And also if I got five grand in my bank account or half a million or 500 grand, like my life's not really different. I don't act if I don't, you know, it's not like I'm bling bling and Rolexes and popping bottles and things like that. Like I live the same. So I, I noticed that too, uh, just when my wealth has fluctuated over the years, like it's really made no difference in my life. So um, I was used to it and, um, you know, I was content. Yeah, that's fair. That's good. So UFC fight night, um, you fight your next bout against James Irving. Irvin, you debut the nickname, the American Psycho. Um, actually, no. Uh, Bruce Buffer uh, called me it for the forest fight. Was it? I thought it was, I had yeah. never heard it. I thought it was RoboCop up until this point. No, he came to me before the forest fight buffer and asked how I wanted to be introduced. And I told him, no nickname, just they said Stefan Bonner. And uh, anyways, uh, Charles Lewis, a.k.a. Masks, the founder of Tap Out, got to buffer and just like it meant so much to him. He liked me. And like before that fight with Forrest, he's like, I like your style. I want to sign you to a sponsorship, win or lose. He pulled me into his, uh, into the tap out van, uh, the big camper before, before the forest fight and told me that. Um, so he, like, he, you know, something about me he liked. And, uh, he, he said like, Oh, like American psycho, it's the greatest nickname ever. I, you know, anyways, so I didn't know this. I didn't know this. I put it together till later, you know, it took me a while. Um, and then I finally figured out like, why did Buffer say that to me? And then of course, when I talked to Matt, he admitted that he told me to. So that's where it kind of came from. Charles Lewis, man, credit him with it. He never went to Buffer. The truth is that's where you got the van idea too. (laughs) Yeah. yeah. (laughs) This is a mobile office. Can you sleep in this? <laughs> <laughs> so uh, James Urban, um, he's fresh up for fighting Terry Martin, a former opponent of yours, lands a flying knee, highlight real knockout. I think it was like in the UFC, like intro for the next few years. And um, he's nine to one coming in. You're eight and two. And, uh, you know, you beat him with the Kimura. Yeah. Um for that fight that was Carlson Gracie's last fight and he was sick like when we went down there he wasn't feeling well he slept a lot so I was worried about him and that's his favorite move you know he's the camera master and uh it just felt so good to to tap him with that move that Carlson you know taught me and it meant so much to him and his specialty and it was kind of like a a thank you to him and little did I know at that time that just two weeks later, he'd be dead. Yeah, and that's it was not January sixteenth, I, I believe February first is when he died. Yeah, February first was two thousand six. Yeah, were you were you in the hospital with him? No, I mean I got back uh, to Chicago with him, and it happened so fast. He he went to the hospital, and it was just like a, the next day he was. You know, I remember. Um, you know, going to the school and saying, hi, I seen you're sick, man. I'm worried about him. I need to get him to go to the hospital. He didn't want to go. You know, he's really stubborn. And then uh, I remember hearing him that they, they, they got him to go. And I was like, oh, thank God. Thank God they got him to go. He's going to be okay now. And then the next day I got the call that he had died. 
Yeah. You, you know what was wild with that situation? Just how his students just, they were at the hospital 24-7. Like, that man was so loved. He really was. At Chipotle, they had a Carlson Gracie day. So they even loved him there. We'd go there every day after training and get burritos. And, uh, yeah, they made a Carlson Gracie day if you showed up, you know, that you were a, had a Carlson Gracie business card that they give you a free burrito. So he'd always have a buck for the bum, you know, the guy begging for money. He was just a good dude, you know, a good dude. Yeah. Yeah, he was loved. Yeah, I mean, for sure. Definitely a staple in the Chicago mixed martial arts scene. Um, and I got to credit him with um, really like my, you know, get my black belt in jujitsu from Sergio Pena and really working like the finer details of the game. I give a lot of credit to him. But the, what Carlson did with me is he'd always just make me start in bad situations. Like I'll always in training. Uh, you know, he'd shark bait me, he'd have fresh guys keep coming in, but it was always Robocop down, mount him, mount him, oh, get his back, a half a guard, a guard, a stand up, ground and pound him. So I was always starting in these miserable positions uh, when I was tired, and that's how he trained me. Um, and if you noticed, like all my fights, you know, I got to credit Carlson. I've never really been in any trouble on the ground. I've always had a very active bottom game where, um, you know, people are kind of defending my game and not about much offense on me. And even that last fight with Tito Ortiz, when I was completely gassed out in the third round, he did his underhook knee tap on me. And I tried the Uriah, Uriah Faber where you just buck and roll through. Um, and it didn't work. Yeah, I landed, I rolled and on my stomach, he sunk both hips in and that's checkmate. When you got a big like, guy who's good on top with both hooks on you, and you're totally sprawled out on your stomach, and you're gassed in the third round. That is checkmate right there. And, you know, I was able to just uh, buck, squirm, get back to my half guard, get the underhook, get back to my feet. Uh, and then I was gassed out. I really couldn't <laughs> throw any effective punches. But, you know, it's Carlson. That's, that's how he trained me all those years of uh, just starting in miserable positions. And, um when you're dead dog tired and you know, he always got it in you to escape. So um, he was uh, really keen on that type of training. Um, and, you know, just thinking about it now, it was miserable, but you know, you know, always like, yeah, I just, I. minutes i'll hit you right back to text oh there it is oh there we go sorry I lost internet. Started. yeah I, I i signed in as lytle on the master screen i apologize okay we good I, yeah oh, we i think good. we're stay it's everything stable it came back on both so i'm ready sorry all right, all right. there we go Stephen. would you mind put your camera on the side oh like that yeah it's okay i fucked up i should have said that again. all right so I'm going to start right from where we left off. So with Keith Jardine, it's April 6th. You know, Carlson Gracie, obviously a huge part of your life past two months prior. And you've got to start all over in regards to like a fight camp and maybe new faces. And in your corner, you've got Duke Rufus and Miguel Torres. 
Yep. Um, trained a lot with Duke for that fight. Uh, obviously, the one before. I was out in California. Uh, trained a little bit out there. Jeez, I don't remember the boxing coach's name I was working with. Jeez, my memory. Worked with a good boxing coach out there at uh, the Wild Card Gym. And I'm drawing a blank on his name. So forgive me. Freddie um, Roach? Yeah, it was no. Freddie Roach. <laughs> no, no, he's not famous. But, okay. you know, it's just nice to give him some credit, but unfortunately, okay. can't do that. Uh, yeah, and then train with Duke Rufus. And uh, yeah, I'd go to Miguel Torres's in East Chicago for my shark bait since, you know, Carlson was gone. Um, I kind of, you know, I, without Carlson there, yeah, I wasn't the same, obviously, at the school. So I kind of had a, yeah, I, I used Miguel Torres to, to do that kind of fight conditioning type of shark baiting, um, which is really important, you know, to get your cardio on point for the fight. So, yeah, I would drive from, and that was killing me, man. I'd drive twice a week out to Milwaukee from Chicago and another twice a week from uh, downtown to East Chicago. Um, and it was just a lot of time in the car and just really hard training sessions. Uh, uh, you know, I just remember after sparring with Pat Barry in Milwaukee, that long two-hour drive home in Chicago, it's so hard to park, you know, I have to park far away, and I try to get out of the car and take a step, and I can't even walk from that fucker kicking my legs so hard. I was, like, crawling back home. <laughs> and the, oh, man, that was so miserable time. I remember going to take a step, like, oh, my God, that guy would fight southpaw and throw his low kick to your back leg you know which i had never seen before and he wow did he baptize my leg my goodness yeah, Pat very very underrated like, probably before that i'd say arlovsky was the hardest low kick i took and then wow after pat barry it was like that was harder than arlovsky holy shit did you train with arlovsky a lot yeah in Chicago, we were uh, sparring partners for um, for a while. Like, uh, go to Jab Boxing Gym and, and give them rounds, give them work. But yeah, he was when an he interesting was guy. Yeah, when he was champ. Yeah, I remember going in there and like, you know, uh, one of the old timers in there is like, you know, uh, asked me something about like. Well, you know, when, when are you fighting or about me fighting? And I said how I did the UFC fighting and oh, really? You know, you're not, well, do some boxing, make some real money. And I was like, no, you know, like, I, They're not lying. argument was like, I'll make more in the UFC, you know, than I would boxing. I'm not that good. Um, and I'm like, but this guy, look, he's the heavyweight champion of the UFC. Orlovsky, did you know that? And the old timer goes, huh, king of his own backyard. <laughs> like like you know it was no like he looked so down on the UFC like it was like you know child's play like it was a joke you know and meanwhile it's like here's a heavyweight champion you're calling him the king of his backyard it's hilarious you know the boxing guys right around this time um like I'm promoting actively promoting in the Chicagoland area and I'm from like the boxing guys like that. Those are my people growing up. They hated the UFC, like with a passion, with a passion. Like they did everything they could to let you know that you were below them. <laughs> yeah. Yep. 
So I think of a lot of it was jealousy because UFC yeah. got so hot, you know, and boxing kind of took us, you know, it took the backseat to it. Like I always yeah. say, bo- boxing's like ballet and, and MMA is like breakdancing. It's like, you know, it's not the same thing, but they could, it's dancing, you know, but uh, yeah. they're going to look down <laughs> on <analogy>. it. analogy. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so um, your next fight, against Rashad Evans, who's coming down from heavyweight, future world champion. They're not doing you any favors on the matchmaking end. No, Dana was pissed off after the Jardine fight. He um, brought me in the lose, you know? He, Why? He, uh, yeah, that I had fought Holger and Jardine with, like, back-to-back, and I remember I needed a break. I needed surgery on my elbow, and, like, he made me fight Jardine, and it was just like, Fuck, you know, it was right two months after the Irvin fight, right? It was, I remember, it wasn't a big break. Yeah, uh, it said April 6th. Uh, so, uh, yeah, uh, I thought he brought me in to lose because after the fight, he was upset that I won, you know? He was like, I thought it was a boring fight and I didn't think you won. And it was like, what motherfucker wanted me to lose, you know? Like, that's weird. Does that uh, coincide yeah. with does that coincide with the bump in your in your contract? Were you about to go from twelve and twelve to sixteen? Yeah, I don't think that's it. I don't know, but I don't know. Yeah, I went from like no, I think that was my last fight at twelve and twelve, and then Rashad, I went to sixteen and sixteen. Okay. But you know, that's kind of the UFC. Mm-hmm. Like now that I'm out of it, I could see like with the matchmaking, like what their plan and intentions are, and you know. Um, you know, they know what they're doing when they have a guy fight like, you know, four times in six months. And, uh, you know, that fourth fight, you're going to get a, a, a broken down version of the fighter. You know, he's not going to be uh, the same guy. And uh, you need that recovery. You need that time off in between fights. Um, and they, yeah, they kind of uh, really pushed me. I remember that that first year after the Ultimate Fighter or those fights in particular, from uh, Hoger to uh, Rashad, it seemed like, uh, yeah, they were pushing me to fight more than I Well, wanted. you know, uh, if there's a champion that they really don't like, and we've said this on a podcast before, the best, you know the UFC doesn't like them when they try to fight them once a month and they continue putting them on that path because what, or month and a half, two months, because there's no downtime, there's no break. And eventually this unbeatable champion, they're, they're just going to break down. Like their body's going to break down. You could only do that for so long. Like you need four months off sometimes. Yeah, I noticed that Oh, back when I cornered Diego, um, just the turnaround, like from that fight, everyone I saw down there on that card. And then I paid attention and, you know, watched a little more than usual. And with, within the next couple months, a couple of those guys, like fought every four to six weeks. It was insane, you know? Um, that one guy... Uh, Demetrius Johnson. Yeah, they fought him a lot. Uh, but just the him guys coming up, the guys coming up on the, you know, undercard, they uh, they kept him busy. A couple of those guys, you know, had fought like three times within a couple months. And that's rough, you know? And you, you drop a split decision and, and uh, you know... It, next fight you you maybe get caught with something and then you're cut you know that's your job and they just made you fight you know three times in five months yeah it's it's such a hard sport that like man 
these guys are so tough to be able to do that. Well, I did it back in the day, but like, it's, it's just not, it's not right, man. Like you, you go through a hard training camp, you, you can take a lot of shots and punches and punishment and just not give your brain that chance uh, to kind of heal. It, it isn't good, man. And I remember seeing those guys stay really active um, that I noticed on that card, a couple of them. And it just whew, made me worry about them, you know? So Rashad Evans, what was your experience in that fight? Um, I need to get punched and no fire lit under my ass. I, I had been trained so much with Miguel Torres. Um, I thought I was going to catch him. My guard had gotten a lot better. And I noticed that like he had some holes in his game. So I just played guard and I shouldn't have, I should have got up and made him fight. Uh, but like that, that's really what went on in my head. It felt like I was just, you know, training, uh, you know, playing around jujitsu and the fight was over, you know, I didn't feel like I was really in a fight. Yeah. Yeah, no, for sure. And he, and he didn't elite. do much. He just defended my game for the most part. It's not like he, you know, really tried to beat me up. He wasn't like really ground and pounding me and going for anything himself. You know, he was just, as I remember, it kind of defended my game for the most part. Yeah, he was an elite level wrestler. Oh yeah. Yeah. You know? Solid wrestler. And especially at, I noticed guys, um, uh, once the day, when, when when they get old they lose the wrestling Koscheck, for example like what a great wrestler he was early in his career and it was like later in his career he forgot how to do a double leg i hear it was because of a neck injury but you see that a lot with wrestlers and rashad too you know um you know the wrong young rashad still had a lot of that raw wrestling talent from college and i feel like he kind of slowly stopped using it as much and those skills deteriorated as he got old yeah, no, for sure, for sure. Now, after this, it almost seemed like you and the UFC were at odds with each other. Like, there was something that they were not happy about with you because you were just like, okay, hey, put me against Forrest again. I'll give you the – it was almost as if they needed repeat showings of the initial Forrest Griffin fight. Did, did you get that feeling as well? Well, I just remember, like – trying to get elbow surgery like since the Jardine fight and then you know okay I'll fight Jardine and then it's gonna get again okay I'll fight Rashad and then it was like I had it scheduled and everything and then they're like no way you want you to fight Forrest again like they thought that they were doing me the biggest gift and I'm like oh I appreciate it I, I you know thank you so much but let me get this surgery and then let me fight him and they just, you know, wouldn't take no for an answer. Chuck Liddell and Babalu was the main event, and they were worried they weren't going to get the buys. They needed a good co-main event. And it was the time worked for them. Even though it didn't work for me, the time worked for them. And, um, you know, I reluctantly took that fight. And um, about 10 days out from the fight, training with the Bulgarian, Woha man we clashed heads and i got a big old cut like 15 stitches right over my eye and uh of course like go to the er get it taken care of call dana right away and he's like oh you know what the fuck you know uh why did you go get it stitched up it's like because you gotta fucking go get a cut stitched up like it's you know like you don't leave it open he's like man i would have flown you out here had my guy stitch it up i was like dude you gotta like, look, like, you know, you got to 
the sooner you close the cut up, the better, you know, I couldn't dick around and fucking, you know, and I remember him like saying that, which I thought was really crazy. Like, why wouldn't you go to the fucking ER and get a cut soda? Anyways, but he's like, we'll come out here and we're going to have our people look at it, you know? Um, uh, and I was like, okay. So I flew out there and he sent me to their doctor, Dr. Shu, and he took a look at me and it's like, yeah, it's a nasty fucking cut and he shouldn't fight, no way, you know? Uh, so they said, okay, fights off. And they sent me back home. I was like, oh, great. You know, my dad calls me the next day, like, hey, uh, go into the Cubs game. You want to go with? So I'm like, yeah, sure. So I went to the Cubs game. Me and him were drinking beers, eating peanuts and hot dogs, having a good old time. And, um, you know, Cubs, uh, Cubs win. We're in a good mood. We're leaving the stadium and the phone rings and it's Dana White. And he goes, get on the plane Tuesday. We're going to make this fight happen. Don't worry about it. But they, what, they talked to the doctor. He said, no way, you know? Yeah, just don't worry about it. We'll take care of it. Just get on the get on the flight. Wear a hat, you know. So, yeah, oh, um, when we flew in there, Forrest Coach was like it, one of the guys in the van when they picked me up from the airport, and I had like a hat pulled down and sunglasses, like trying to hide the stitches. Oh my! His protection program. <laughs> and oh, I left this part out. <clears throat> Dana was like, I was like, Did, you know, like, no, you flew me out there. You called the fight off. Look, I'm just leaving the Cubs game. I've been drinking. I uh, got like fucking, I know it's just been a day, but I really let myself go. Um, and I'm like, dude, I can't fight. This cut's going to bust back open. And uh, and then he bribed me and said, hey, well, I was going to give you this uh, little chunk of money after the first forest fight as a thank you. Uh, but I was going to, I was going to give it to you um, after this fight. Uh, and it was kind of like, how much? And he told me, and it was like, okay, <laughs> I'll get on the plane. So, uh, All right. yeah, I'll be there. <laughs> Let yep. me recap. Let me recap really fast for the people. So he took on January sixteenth of two thousand six was James Irvin, then April sixth Keith Jardine, uh, June twenty eighth Rashad Evans, and August twenty sixth Forrest Griffin. So actually two months between the Evans fight and the Rash uh, and the uh, Forrest Griffin fight. And you've been asking for elbow surgery. You said since Jardine, which is in April. So about yeah, he got two fights in four months out of you while you were asking for elbow surgery yeah i had like this vertical fracture like um right there on the ulna bone and um but every time i'd get kicked there it would like i couldn't bend it like the bone was uh my body kept sending bone down there to fill in where the crack was and then i'd get my arm kicked and it would be forced into flexion like forced this way and like that, the bone would break off. So I had uh, like these marble sized pieces of bone floating around there and this big mass of bone built up on there for my body trying to heal it. But I kept, you know, traumatizing it. Um, so it was at the point where I couldn't even bend my arm 90 degrees. Like I take vitamins in my hand and when I go to have them, they'd all fall to the floor because I couldn't bend my arm that much. I couldn't touch my, my ear. Like I couldn't do that, touch my thumb to my shit. Like not even, I thought I'd never be able to do that. Um, but yeah, you'd push on my arm and it would bend like 
that much. It was, it was, yeah, just, I couldn't block a left hook either. I couldn't do this, you know? So I was just leaning back a lot. Um, <laughs> anyways, uh, but that surgery, man, like my God, did they do a hell of a job on that surgery. Hill Hastings out of Indianapolis went in there and just burned out all that bone, smooth it out, pop the marbles out. I fought like two months after the actual surgery. I fought a, um, Mike Nichols. Mike yeah, Nichols. So, yeah. How was your relationship with uh, Joe Silva at this point? I'm assuming these phone calls are coming from him. Yeah, really. Like, I remember he called me with uh, the forest fight. Like, I got a gift for you. Like, oh, I got the. You're going to be so happy in me. Like, we want you to fight forest again. Oh, that's great. When? Like, boom, in, in August. Like, what? I can't, you know. Anyways, uh, that I wasn't grateful for that. I, I think he really held that against me and um, hated me ever since then. I mean, I don't know. I, I, it was like we got along face to face, but you know, I had a feeling like uh, behind my back, he wasn't so nice. I even had my one buddy on a phone call secretly uh, between my manager and Joe Silva. And he told me like, you know, you're pretty much cattle. You know, like, yeah, yeah. At this Just point, the way at this he talked point, about you, like you were a dog. Yeah, I'm sorry. At this point, it does seem like they were doing a little bit. Like, Forrest had just lost to Tito in April, so there's, you know, they're not really. You get less time, but Forrest isn't getting a lot of time either, or anything like that. It's like you both like fell, like from favor or something. I don't know. Did you ever uh, talk to Forrest about that? How they approach him for the fight? No, he, I think uh, he was in good shape and pretty healthy for that. Um, he'd been training in Vegas. Um, who did he lose to right before that? Tito. Tito. Oh, that's right. Uh, a close Your friend. One. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> that's right. Uh, yeah, no, I mean, I, I never really talked to him about the, it always seems like he had a good relationship with him and like, Never got on their bad side. Never really pissed them off. So how was the backstage with the other fighters? Was there a little jealousy of you? Did you ever sense that? I mean, if you're getting Dana direct right through the front door of the UFC, there's a lot of guys that have been there, you know, four or five years that don't, you know, they don't have that. Yeah, I I would sense a little bit of it, like, um, you know, just being around all the other UFCs, I'd be so excited to, like, get a picture with, like, Josh Barnett or something, and, you know, afterwards, I'd be like, wow, I really felt like the dude didn't like me, you know, he did not want to take that picture, like, uh, so I'd feel a little of that, but, you know, I was kind of oblivious to it in terms of I wouldn't in, in, engage, but, like you just knew that you know we we were getting a lot of shine from uh you know the the first ultimate fighter finale and definitely the guys the older guys i'm sure they hated us so i <laughs> i would have hated me too <laughs> so mike nichols this actually appears to be a favor to you uh mike nichols is five and one he was on the ultimate fighter season three he's at colorado jiu-jitsu um, pretty tough guy in his own right. 
Yeah, they were like, okay, fought four times in six months and postpone your surgery for us. So here, we'll, we'll, we'll give you a, a lighter one. Yeah, so well, you know, we had talked about, it, it seemed almost as if you had fallen out of favor. And, you know, I, you know I'm a local guy. So I'm a, anybody from, you know, this area, I'm rooting for. So I'm a Stefan Bonner fan through and through at this point. And when I saw you walk down, you know, for your walk into the cage, you had Delagrate and Duke Rufus in your corner. Oh wow! That's, yeah, that's yeah. that's a recipe for disaster. Hmm. Yeah, yeah. I, I, they worked, man. They got along. They got along pretty good, and there weren't any problems. It went pretty smoothly. Um, yeah, I'd been training with both guys, and I was still had went out to Delagrates a couple times. Uh, you know, for that fight and train with Duke. And, you know, I think Kenny was on that card. So Mark was there. So I had the slot and, you know, uh, those two seemed to get along pretty well um, at that time. So. Yeah, but it's yeah, two head coaches. Out. You know, it's two head coaches though. You know, you could only really have one head coach. Yeah. I don't know. I never thought about it like that. It, it worked out. It wasn't like I had more problems with like Justin McCulley, um, and him wanting to be mic'd up and throwing like a temper tantrum, like, yeah, right. You know, like Mike Nick up one kick, Nick, like he's my guy. Um, but yeah, we, between those two, it, it, it went smoothly. I, I never, never thought anything of it until now, to be honest with you. Well, you got to look at it this way too. Like Joe Silva, when he says, welcome back, which is nice, you know, of him to do, but at any point, Joe, Joe is absolutely somebody that would notice something like this take place. Like that, that's just who he is. Like if he sees you getting a picture with somebody, that's probably going to be your next opponent. And in October, 20, 2007, UFC 77, he puts you in with Eric Schaefer, Red Schaefer, and he's got Rufus in his corner and you're with Delagrate. Was yeah. that set up by design? Do you think by you know, the matchmaker, Joe Silva? Uh, uh, it was an option, and he presented to me as an option. Like, hey, here's who I got for you. What do you think about it? And I said, sure, no problem. You know, um, I was just confident that I could beat him. We had trained together before. I knew he was really dangerous on the ground, but I was pretty confident in my submission defense. So, uh, yeah, it was a fight that I wanted. Yeah, it was, that was, it seemed like there was like some internal politics taking place because the guy that's been in your corner now is cornering the other guy and you've been to his gym and he knows it's probably got tape yep. on you training. Oh yeah. That was weird. Like he knew me really well, but it was like, Hey, the only guy that's fighting me is uh, Eric Schaefer. So, you know, unless he figures out a way to kind of beat me up, then I'm good. Yeah, when we See, trained together, like it, it wasn't, uh, it wasn't a lot, it was just a handful. She's probably a couple times, but it was enough times to, to you know, know I could beat him. Hmm. And uh, yeah, it's interesting. I was confident that I could beat him, and I didn't care that they knew my game, you know. It you know, he it seemed like he hit a cardio wall in the second round as well. Like, I think that's just kind of yeah, what it Yeah, that was the plan, too, to really, you know, make them work hard. Uh, 
because I could be a handful in there. Like I try to keep a lot of pressure going. Uh, it's just my style of fighting. And, you know, I just knew if I made him fight really hard, I could probably break him down. Okay. And you also had a fight with Matt Hamill scheduled, but you pulled up because of a torn knee. Yeah, the Super Bowl and knee surgeries, I blew everything out. Two ligaments, two tendons, joint capsule, and the meniscus. And Dr. Ron Kovitny out of Los Angeles did a hell of a job. That's my good knee now. That's my good knee. My other knee's all arthritic and worse, and I've had five scopes on it. Um, and it's really bad right now. But yeah, my totally reconstructed knee is my good knee. But yeah, that was uh, described as the Super Bowl of knee surgeries. How did it happen? Training jujitsu, all gassed out on the ground, and guy, you know, just jammed my leg in towards me, and the ligaments on the back and outside just like that whole. He said the posterior lateral corner just blew up pretty much. Just that whole thing blew out. Um, everything blew, just blew. Hmm. So, you you sat out. You for perspective, you sat out two thousand eight. I mean, an injury happened in 2007. You sat the whole 2008 and returned in 2009. So, you know, that's an extensive time off for recovery, no? That's, uh, you know, like look at uh, Tom Brady or any um, football player who blows their ACL. They're going a whole year, you know? Yeah. They're going a season. And that's how it is. Like you can't even begin to start recovery till the six-month mark. And the reason for that, um, I'm glad he told me this or else I would have screwed myself up. He goes, your knee will feel better after a couple months. Don't push it. You take it easy. Don't start doing anything to that six month mark. Cause I just put in dead tissue in you. I put in cadaver tendons as ligaments because it takes six months for your own cells to grow over it. Um, so that made a lot of sense to me. So I didn't, uh, you know, made sure I didn't screw it up. It was a big surgery. I didn't want to, you know, and I GSP, we saw him screw it up by, you know, trying to really, oh, I'm, I'm going to do therapy twice as hard as anyone else and I'll be back sooner. And you screw it up again. So I knew that. Tony Ferguson, too. Yeah. Yeah. It's really, really easy to do. Really easy to do. Because it's true. After three months, you feel great, you know, feel like you can train again, but there's no stability in it and you're just going to re injure it. So, so uh, after this, they do you a huge favor and they put you in against 21 year old John Jones. <laughs> yep. Yeah. This kid's green. Uh, Second UFC appearance. You got it'll him. Be a, it'll be an easy W for you. A good first fight back after the knee reconstruction. You know, we need to give you, throw you a bone here, give you something winnable. Oh, thanks, Joe. <laughs> That's really how he presented it. Like, now, do you think you do you think he knew what he favorite. had on his hands? Do you think he knew what he had on his hands with Jones? Maybe not, he... but I think he did. I think he did. Just the way he served it up, like, yeah, this kid's really dangerous and athletic and all that. Ah, oh, this kid's green, and it'll be a good, you know, builder fight for you. Like a, you know, get you back in the mix after that that injury that was presented to me in that way. And I kind of believed him like, all right, like wrestler, young kid, like probably submission defense isn't there, you know, striking isn't there. Uh, it should be an easy night. So I, yeah, I, uh, I, I thought that 
it would be an easier fight than it was. But then, you know, when I ran into him at weigh-ins and I just saw the frame on him, I was like, geez, fucking guy's hands are like, fingers are like bananas. <laughs> yeah, like, fuck, never seen hands that big. Yeah. He, and usually, uh, that's, usually that's you. Usually you're the guy with the RoboCop, you know, the RoboCop, uh, the big frame, you know, that kind of thing. Yeah. Yeah, you know, I was big for the weight class, and he was way bigger than me, way longer reach than me. And uh, it was just like uh, being in there with him. He was so long. It was so hard to get in punching range. So, like, I ended up falling in with my punches and overcommitting, and I'd wind up in his clinch. And then his throws were so good, man. Like, I'd be caught off balance from, from – Falling in with my punches and he'd throw me. And that was the story of the fight. You know, all right. I, I think there's a little bit more to that story. I think um I think he was guessing in that third round. And oh, for sure. He says it himself that I was hitting him with good shots and he had nothing left. Yeah. So I, yeah, I, I, I made him fight like he'd throw me or hit me with something big, and I'd immediately get right back on him you know if you see after that highlight real spinning elbow where he crammed me with that he said his elbow was sore for a couple weeks and my feet flew up in the air the first thing to hit the ground was my head when i hit the ground my shoulder my collarbone separated it kind of popped on up i didn't feel that till the middle of the night that night woke up in my bed screaming in pain and my collarbone was obviously like an inch higher on this side but um yeah, that spinning elbow, he creamed me with it. Uh, but when you notice, I hit the ground and I immediately start shrimping and attacking, getting on their hook and getting back to my feet. So I shook it off. Um, no problem. Man, I, if, I remember in the third round telling the guys next minute I'm watching it, I said, Stefan might win this fight. Like, because Jones was fading so fast. Uh, he yeah, was... Uh, I- needed to land that big one man you couldn't do yeah. it man yeah yeah it's yeah. oh. it fun to watch i saw joe kane yeah, in your corner it. too oh yeah you know joe yeah boxing guy come on bro of course wow man we still talk man yeah he calls me every few weeks but yeah we still talk on a regular basis joe kane yep the alley cat that was my nickname for him <laughs> It's a great dude, though, man. Yeah, pretty talented guy. guy. Well, you go in from John Jones, and they put you in a what could be considered a Hall of Fame versus Hall of Fame fight, July 11, 2009, when the UFC took in pride. They also took on their contracts, one of which was Mark the Hammer Coleman at UFC 100. Oh, yeah. Yeah. yeah, Hammer came in shape for that fight. Like, uh, he, he trained hard, so my hat's off to him. He came out to Vegas. And that guy, you know, is a freak of nature. Back in the day, like, I couldn't hold his shock strap. He was an Olympic-level wrestler. Um, and just his double leg was, like, getting run over by a truck, man. I never felt anything like it. Uh, he just, uh, you know, watching him coming up, too, and he was champion when I was just a kid at Purdue, like, he told me at that time I'd be fighting that guy in 10 years. Like, yeah, right. You know, never see it. Uh, 
but yeah, he came in out to Vegas 10 weeks, trained really hard, got his cardio up. If you remember the fight before, he was about a minute from beating Shogun and he gassed yeah. out. Uh, he had that fight in the bag uh, and gassed out in 30 seconds left. But, um, you know, I he did what he had to do to win, you know, like uh, he got a couple t- key takedowns. And the biggest mistake I think I made is I went for that inverted uh, shoulder lock from the guard that Frank Mir caught Pete Williams in the bend your the arm this way and I was pulling on it like that he just cracked me with his opposite elbow and opened up a cut on me and that blood pouring down just you know does not look good and uh, I remember too in that third round he was just holding me down holding me down and I finally like created the scramble and got back up and started reversing the position just ran out of time you know so, he uh like i he's... had the first half of the fight and then he got a couple key takedowns and you know when i went for that shoulder lock cut me with an elbow and you know but you were bleeding was... a lot at the end of the first round no i think that i beat him up the first round i think he cut me oh end of fight third. i apologize end of fight yeah, yeah. end of yeah. fight yeah yeah i think it was the third round he caught me with that elbow but yep yeah. Like the dude, uh, great strategy, you know, got takedowns in the second and third that, you know, gave him the round. You, you kept switching your lead foot. Like you started southpaw and then in the second round, you started like a typical orthodox. Yeah, I wish I would have stayed. Same with the Tito fight. Like when I went southpaw, I landed that straight left like easily. And I didn't really catch on to it during the fight. Watching it, you could tell, like, you couldn't see the straight left. Like, it landed no problem. But, uh, you know, oh well. Now, with Christoph Simsinski, in my opinion, both of your fights with him are UFC Hall of Fame worthy fights. Like, it mirrored, it mirrored what took place with Stefan Bonner. Yeah, we went at it, man. Those were barn burners, man. That first fight was rough, too, in Australia. I broke my foot, like, um, just days before the fight. My, I was moving around with Alex Schoenhauer a few days before the fight, and I kicked his elbow and broke a little bone in my foot, man. It was swollen up the size of a football. So if you notice with the right leg, instead of kicking him, tie kicking him, I was throwing the front kick because it was just – it was broken. And then – uh in the first round, I, with my other leg, he checked one of my uh, low kicks with my left leg, and that foot swelled up like a football. So after that fight, I had two broken feet. I was, oh, my God. I'll never forget, too, like, during the first round, um, you know, I near the end of the round, we clinched up, and he felt so strong. And um, also in that fight, the, he comes out in the first, he throws a low kick and a left hook he fights southpaw and he broke my nose so yeah i just remember at the end of the round clinching up and he felt so strong and the round ended and i went back to my stool and i'm sitting on the stool and i'm like i fought my ass off that round i fucking you know like fought my ass off but i fucking look at me i got a broken nose and two broken feet i probably fucking lost the round this looks bad you know like oh and he felt so strong and i just felt oh that shitty feeling. And then the second round bell rings, we go at it. And the second round is another good round, but now I'm doing a little better. I'm timing them better. And this time at the end of the round, we clinch up and I, I'm stronger than him. Like I could 
feel he's lost some strength. And, and then round ends, I go back down on the school. And now mentally I'm in a completely different state. I'm all excited. Like he's getting weaker. I got this. I'm going to take him out of there. I'm going to break him this round. And then third round starts and we have that clash of heads and uh, just spraying blood all over the place. And the referee waves it off and they should keep looking up on the replay and showing them replaying it. And then when you listen to Joe Rogan, he's saying, here we are, slow motion, it's clearly a clash of heads. Yep, yep, right here. Let's frame advance it. Boom, there it is. Clearly a clash of heads. And, you know, of course, I'm looking up, seeing, knowing that they're replaying it, knowing that Joe's probably saying it's a clash of heads, which it was. And um, I'll never forget, too, when it happened, we go in, boom, clank. My knee dropped down really quick. I pop back up, and I, I go, headbutt, headbutt. And I actually hear the ref go, no, it isn't. Keep fighting. And I just remember like, what? I'm like getting punched. Like I punch up Chris. I'm like, what the, what the fuck? What do you mean? No, it isn't. Like it clearly is. Uh, so I'm thinking they're going to call it a no contest. And we go to the judges and like after this round, like by TKO, Kristoff. And I just couldn't believe it. I was devastated. I honestly thought it was going to get called a no contest. And um, they raised his hand and called him the winner. And I freaking lost it. I, uh, you handled I, it really I, well. I, I, yeah, right. You should have seen after I like got in the backstage, I started crying like a baby. Oh, well, hold crying on. Hold like on. a baby. See, this is where I think you're much different than most people. Because they're crying like a baby and whatever took place backstage, usually that happens right then and there. Rather than that, you take the road. You take the road of well. In a post-fight interview, you did something so important that most people should take note of this. You said, "Well, hey, why don't we do rounds four, five, and six? You're like, "Hey, whatever, four, five, and six. And like in the past, you saw like guys like Joe Daddy Stevenson who would put on a electrifying performance, and then you go, "Yeah, everybody, I'm sorry for my performance." But like he would continuously apologize where. The crowd would be up here and he would bring them down to like where he appeared to be feeling rather than do that. You say four five and six. And it's like, who cares if he's on a skid? And at this point, if you lost two fights, you were cut from the UFC. Uh, yeah. The funniest thing about that too, at the post fight press conference, um, I said, come here, zoom in on this. And the cut actually took the shape of a K it, it made a K in my head. And it was the craziest thing. I posted a picture on my Instagram of it. But yeah, uh, yeah like the irony, man. Talk about God's having a sense of humor. You know, I lose on a cut from a headbutt and it just imprints the K for Kristoff in there. Like, wow. <laughs> <laughs> hey, so now, let me, I, I got a question here a little bit because it's a long time now since tough and you're probably through that initial rigorous contract you, you say you know 12 12 12 12 for a couple of times and stuff that's not cool have you gotten taken care of at any point have you felt like aside from them bribing you to do a fight they wanted you to do have you been getting any other bonuses or and is your re-up like something that you're happy with or, or no what they do is they keep adding another three fights on so after you do the nine fights at 22 and 22 then yeah we'll do couple more at 25 and 25 and then 28 and 31 then 34 like that's how it kind of went for me i kept 
trickling up there. Now, let me ask you, did they do the old, because, you know, on paper, you hey, you get the fight on UFC 100. Isn't that cool for you? Hey, you get the fight in Australia. Isn't that cool? It's like, are they giving you little perks like that and, like, trying to get too much mileage out of them? Or you're not, you're, it wasn't like that. I kind of get the feeling they're, they're smarmy that way. Uh, yeah, it is. I mean, it would have been nice to be getting some more money uh, or but no, no. I mean, I was on that same tough contract pretty much my whole career with the UFC, and they just kept uh, incrementally upping it. Um, yep, couple, couple thousand buck bonuses. <laughs> no, you're a thousand Arab. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that, that's not easy. That's not easy. Dollar raise, woo! You know the thing is, they keep sending you into wars though. Like Rashad Evans, John Jones, those obviously aren't easy fights. And the matchmaker, it's his job to get the best product. And whenever you think you're going to beat the UFC, you're sadly mistaken. Like the gods of war come in and and intervene with them. It it almost Uh, goes beyond that too, Mike, because if you consider it, not only are they wars and stuff like that, but like on the UFC side, pure selfishness, right? For Forrest Griffin, Two, they tell him we got a sort of lukewarm main event, Lydell and, and Sobral. We really need the support. And then they force him to do the fight. It's like they're they're asking for favors and not returning favors, too. But the main event may have been getting paid more than as well than, yeah. than those two. Oh, yeah. Main event uh, always gets the big payday. But they needed you to carry it. Yeah. Well, you don't. Yeah, the co-main event you really don't get any sort of perks for that. You're just the co-main event. Yeah. It just looks good. Yeah, that's yeah. your perk. Yeah. You get to say you were a co-main event. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, when you're at the bar later on in life, you get to say this. Right? Yeah, the people don't realize just how much power the matchmaker has and how, like, how, you, you know, you could pretty much take any guy and match him up favorably or unfavorably and then also... You know, make them fight, you know, uh, too often and not recover and send them, you know, far away. Like, you know, fighting overseas when he fought like a couple times in a few months, like that's not easy. Uh, so they know what they're doing. You know, they know when the guy loses his coach and hell, you need to find a new team to train with. Let's, you know, put him in there uh, and you know, and build someone else. Like they, they, they have a lot of power and control and they, you know, they, you fight when they want you to. So um, unless you're like counter McGregor and you're holding all the chips, but you know, for 90 plus percent of the guys on the roster, that's how it is. You're kind of at their mercy. And if they don't like you, they like personally, I don't think they like Jay here on that much. They give him terrible matchups in the UFC and he, you know, great fighter won every title outside the UFC. And then he, uh, you know, goes 0-2 in two runs. He went 0-2, like, fought. Um, uh, he lost on a cut to um, that uh, Goliath, that Canadian guy. Yeah, um, yeah. And he uh, then he drew GSP and lost to GSP and then got cut. And his trip back in the UFC, lost the close one to Ellenberger, like a split decision. And the second fight, they put him against Woodley when Woodley was hot and he got caught and he got cut again. And I'm like, oh my God, dude, 
That guy lives in the gym, trains harder than anyone I've seen, won every title outside of the UFC. But man, two UFC stints at 0 and 2 and 0 and 2. That's that's rough, man. It just shows you how really talented, high level guys, you know, could just not. Uh, they don't look like it in the UFC sometimes because they get some bad matchups. Yeah, and Jorge Santiago falls into that category as well. Just absolute savage. I think 0-3 in the UFC and, you know, Sengoku champion. Yeah. everything outside it, yeah. So how fast did they come at you with the rematch against Christoph Sosinski? Oh, pretty close. Like, um, that was like, you know, by the time we got back home, uh, it was probably like the next week. I mean, it was kind of understood. I even think. Like, uh, they hinted it in Australia still. Like, you know, it was a good fight. We could probably do it again. Yeah, we could probably do it again. Uh, so I, I kind of, you know, was uh, pretty confident that they would let us do it again. It seemed like they were hinting at it even in Australia. Hmm. You know, at the beginning of the, the rematch, Kristoff uh, goes to touch gloves and you wave it off. Yeah, I don't like freaking you could touch gloves after the fight and that but he's a notorious glove toucher and you know the first fight if you watch it like i don't think he did that on purpose but he wanted to touch gloves and i you know i didn't and then we start fighting and he's coming out like that and i'm in my fighting stance and i was like okay we'll touch gloves and right when i loosened up to go touch gloves he fucking fired off a few punches at me and so i was like i didn't trust him you know i'm like you know, I'm not going to fall for that one again. Go look at the beginning of the first fight. Yeah. You know, he's totally yeah. suffered me there. His arm length is incredibly deceiving as well. Yeah, he's got some monkey arms. He was like, uh, you think like you're in a safe like distance, and then you're going to kind of move in and out, and like it's you're right in his range. It's it's deceiving with him for sure. Yeah, and he's a southpaw. Um, in your match against, obviously, you win that. You stop him. Uh, second round KO, fight of the night, I might add. You know, another fight of the night bonus for you, which I think is worth more than your win bonus at this point. Oh, yeah. It was a $75,000 uh, fight of the night bonus. And I think was, my show money was like was this, 34 at the time. Cool, cool. Was this the famous night that, like, Brock Lesnar kind of... Shane Carr won, yep. I think he... I think Brock... Heard the bonuses were slated to be like 70K, and he said, Come on, make it 75 or something like that. There was an exchange with Dana. Is, can you verify or? Uh, <laughs> I haven't heard that. Are you sure it wasn't me? I'm usually the one saying, Oh, come on, throw in an extra five grand. So it might have been me. <laughs> 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 Any Brock stories uh, from that night before we let Mike take over again? Um, I was a hell of a fight. Uh, he's just a hoss, man. And he's got such a long reach and it's not because his arms are so long. I realized this when I was standing behind him because his back's so wide. Like his back is so wide and that gives him such he's a huge former heavyweight wingspan. Yeah. His wingspan is, you know, not because of the arm length. It's because of the shoulder width. That's crazy. weird. Yeah, it's crazy. Um, in your bout against uh, Igor Prokrajic, I'm never going to get that right, bro. Prokrajic, um, they call it. Yeah. Prokrajic. It, it was really weird. It was almost as if Mazagati, I obviously you win, but 
But Mazzagatti seemed to be struggling that fight with just, I, I don't know, his ability to control the bout. Well, first of all, I'm on top, like north-south, working my game, and he cracks me with two illegal knees. Like, he pushed my head up and bang, bang. And I started bleeding from it. And he doesn't say anything. Nothing. Mazzagatti doesn't it happen right near the end of the round. So I remember getting up from that. Well, what the hell, Steve? Like, those were illegal knees. And then my coach, one kick, started yelling at him. Steve, what the hell? Those were illegal. And then he, oh, okay. And then he went and took the point away. But it's like, You guys almost bullied him to do that. You had to yeah. bully him to get a point. Yeah. Like, he didn't even call it. Like, it should have been a, whoa, stop, break. You know, like, illegal Recover? Knee, like, uh, yeah, exactly. Yeah, chance to recover. Yeah, yeah, Kareem, like, they were solid knees, and, like, he didn't even give a fuck. Like, they were obvious, too. They were loud. They were thump, thump. Well, he even the said it. Ends, like, and it's like, the fuck, Steve? <laughs> he, was, he was giving, like, verbal, don't do it to the back of the head, and then he did it, like, a couple more times. And he never gives you a chance to recover, takes a point without a warning, and then the fight resumes again. And then in the, in the third round, with one second left in the third round, he takes a point from you for punching him in the back of the head. Oh, yeah. The time's running out. I'm like in a side bounce. So, you know, I'm just punching away. You know, a couple seconds left. And Igor turns his head, you know. So, like, the punches land there. And, like, yeah, one but second left. But that's not left, your fault. Stop. So, yeah, exactly. He turned his head into him. Oh my God! Yeah, and that that was if it were a close fight, like that would have fucking. Uh, oh man, that was terrible so, wrestling, though. So, and, and think about this: with one second left, what are you gonna do? Give Igor five minutes to recover so he can come back out for one second, and there's no warning. And a a, back, a punch in the back of the head is an intentional blow to the back of the head. If you're punching me here and I turn around and it hits the back of my head, that that's that, that's my issue, not yours. And that's what he did. Yep, that's what it was. That, that side mountain. When we turn, there you go. Yeah. It, it was almost as if he was trying to give a point back because he felt yes. guilty for taking the original point. Yes, exactly. That's exactly how I felt. Like he just, he didn't want to, he didn't want to like call the foul that Igor did on me, so he begrudgingly took that point away. So now he's trying to even him back out. So strange, like it's yeah, it was so weird, man. Had a nice lead, yeah. Jeez, yeah. Did did you have, did you talk to Steve after the fight, or was it just it is what it is? Yeah, I just I think I talked to like. Lorenzo and Dana about it. Like, what the fuck? They were like, yeah, I know that was terrible. You know, I think I talked to them a little bit about it. Like, what the fuck? And they agreed. <laughs> totally agreed. Yeah. <laughs> so, in your bout with Cal Kingsbury, which is your next one, and then we're going to start getting some meat of, of, uh, of your career. Um, you win by decision. Obviously, not, uh, you know, it's more of like a, a grappling type exchange between you two. And, um, you apologized to Josh Koscheck at the end of the bout in your post-fight speech. Yeah, I made that T-shirt of a, him as a Cabbage Patch Kid, uh, Josh Kosh Magosh, and sold him. And uh, <laughs> he, you know, he 
he legitimately sued me and then like part of the uh agreement of the lawsuit i had to pay him five grand and um and and offer him a public apology so like well let's take care of this you know it's part of the deal i owe him an apology so that that was part of the deal we worked out oh but they were you you did it right you did it right though yeah that's what i thought yeah it uh you know it was classy (laughs) you know let me let me ask this is so you you come out of tough you start out with a three fight win streak and you're kind of you know getting adjusted now this is your second three fight win streak in a row are you like where where's your head or where's your health too are you thinking about a title run and that sort of thing or do you are do you think the ufc has you in a diminished role uh no at that point um like you know i had already fought john jones before he like was john jones and you know i really wasn't interested in run for the title i just knew that you know my body was pretty banged up i was getting old i had taken a lot of shots and i kind of wanted to just have like one going going away party type fight like i was saying a third fight with forrest and make it a barn burner that's what i was pushing for and the lettuce coach tough let us coach tough and have a good fight at the end, you know, because we're both on TV, good on TV. And that's really the most important thing. It's a TV show. So you get guys with good TV chemistry that make it entertaining. Um, and it makes for good TV, you get good ratings. But instead he went with uh, Junior Dos Santos, who doesn't speak English, and Brock, which, you know, is a big name in that, but just not so good on TV and talking. Uh, so it was like, well, not going to get you know, what you campaign for. I thought if I campaign hard and really begged for it, because I never really asked for anything that they'd, you know, give me something like that. And it was just like, no, like, nope, it's not going to happen. So quit asking. Why don't, and I was kind of getting pushed into retirement. Dana was like, you know, like, why keep fighting? You've got enough miles on you. You know, you should hang it up. You can get a job with us, come work for us. So he kind of was, you know, uh, pushing me towards the retirement. And I was like, fine, I, uh, I'm done. I had enough of this. Like, uh, my body is really feeling it. And uh, I'd be happy retired and working for the company. So, so I did. I, I took a job working for the UFC. And um, they pulled me off the fighter roster. And I was no longer, you know, a fighter. I was an employee getting health insurance and everything. Wow. But, Unlike but when then, you were a fighter. <laughs> yeah. But, but, yeah, but then it pulled, exactly. You you stop being a fighter, you get the health insurance. Isn't that funny? That's yeah. crazy. <laughs> yeah. An employee of the and, and then your last fight with the UFC against Anderson Silva. Um, How'd that come about? This is a hard one for me to stomach. I'll let yeah, you talk about uh, the situation. I had, I, had, I had been working for the company, um, so I stepped down from fighting. And I hadn't been training. I kind of let myself go. Um, so, you know, I'd been on the shelf a while and um, I just decided, Hey, you know, I want to get back in shape. Uh, Batista was having an MMA fight and Josh Rafferty, you know, said he'd pay me to come out there and train with him for a few weeks. So it was like, okay, like I'll start, uh, 
training again. Like I'm not getting tested. I'm working for the company, so I don't got to worry about it. So I started doing a steroid cycle. And uh, um, I remember I took the, the last dose before I got on the plane to go down to Florida with train with Batista. And uh, at the end of the two weeks is when I got the call that, hey, we're in a jam and like um, UFC 153, we're going to have to cancel. It's going to be in Rio, Rio, but Jose Aldo got hurt and the co-main event fight got hurt too. So they were going to scrap the whole show. And uh, um, they threw uh, Anderson Silva uh, some names and like I was one of them. And next thing you know, he said he'd, he'd he'd step up and save the card and fight me and uh it was just like oh my god like what like i not not planning on fighting but the thing was i stopped thought i was retired stuff. yeah before i got on the plane so like i'm doing the math and the fight's like three weeks away and um like it was supposed to be out of my system and i thought it would be so it was just like not on my timing, but it was kind of like I was going around asking for a big marquee fight, you know, a big going out fight. And I couldn't get it. They wouldn't give it to me. But now they were in a jam and they, you know, I felt like, you know, the company's calling on me and I have to step up for them. And I really thought I'd pass the test and uh, it'd be out of my system because it'd been like five weeks since I had taken it. It's like a four week detection window. And it didn't, it showed up and uh, that, that was it, man. That was like uh, the straw that broke the camel's back, got canned and uh, the rest is history. So, oh, is that, is that why they fired? I, at least yeah. have fun like during the weigh-ins and the photo ops and stuff. Cause you posed down, bro. I remember those. Yeah, uh, <laughs> but that was it, man. Um, I, well, know, let's, of, let's I had a kind kid. Of my son was being born too. So my son came right around that time. Uh, but, but yeah, I thought like, you know, they're calling on me. I have to stand up, step up and, uh, you know, show them I'm a company man. But really all I had to do is say, uh, no, I'm good. I don't want to fight that motherfucker. I'm happy. You know, like, cause I was, my life was pretty good. I was pretty content working for him. And, um, you know, like, I just, for some reason, man, I couldn't be honest and just say no. Since I had talked all that shit before, campaigning for a big fight, now since I get the opportunity to it, like, I'd look so stupid for saying no, you know? This is what I've been asking for. Not on these well, terms, but do you, do, you think you, do you think if you were honest saying that, man, I might test positive for steroids, do you think, uh, do you think they would have... Here, this is... Let, let me set the table. There's at this point, there's no athletic commission in Brazil. There isn't. And the UFC flies in all of their people. So the UFC is acting as their own commission. They so wouldn't now, have given me the fight, you know? If I would have told them, they would have said, okay, well, you're not fighting then. You um, think? Yeah, for sure. Here, Chelsea and Waterley Silva gets canceled. Vitor Belfort Waterley Silva gets canceled. Jose Aldo versus Eric Koch uh, uh, from Iowa gets canceled. Jose Aldo versus uh, Frankie Edgar gets canceled. So the UFC is in a jam. So they pull you and Anderson in. And the thing is, it's like they are their own athletic commission. And you can sit here and go, okay, well, they were being righteous and doing the right thing. Yeah, tell that to Mark Hunt. Yeah. 
You know, like say that to Mark Hunt. You have that have that conversation with him. I think you're going to be met with a whole bunch of actual reality and facts that'll you know kind of tell you differently than what you're thinking. Yeah, that's uh, that's it. Like I wish I would have just been honest and said I don't want the fight, um, but I felt like I, I couldn't, you know, and I got to be a company man and step up for for him and save the card, and you know, like. Uh, how did they fire you? They just, you know, told me that, uh, you know, I failed the test. And then, you know, uh, pretty much this is a PR nightmare. Um, we can't let you come back to work just yet. Just serve your suspension. And when your suspension's up, then we'll be open for discussion. So I sat out the next year crossing my fingers like, oh, I can't wait till this year's up. I want to go back to work for the UFC. And then once the year was up, they, they wouldn't talk to me. And uh, yeah, and then about another year passes and I get offered the Tito fight and at Bellator and I hit Dana up like um, saying, hey, I got a crazy offer like from Bellator to fight Tito, man. Like, you know, I'd rather not. I'd rather come work for you guys. And, you know, like, is that still an option? And I get like a message back saying, like, I hope you kick his ass and make a lot of money. Like, what? Uh, okay. Damn. So it was like, all right, well, he just sounded like he gave me a, this is from Dana. It's like, well, it sounds like a blessing. It sounds like a go ahead and do this, you know, like we won't hold it against you. So I took the fight and the little did I know they did hold it against me. And that was like a blacklist thing. And, you know, I, you know, my phone stopped ringing after I took that fight. It was like that hurt their feelings. And, um, you know, but like, fuck, man, I, I kind of hit them up, like looking for either his blessing or to like, hey, you could come work for us again. But um, that's that's how he responded. And it felt to me like he was like pushing me towards taking the fight so i i thought like okay like i believe him i don't i think he doesn't care and uh like but it was kind of like uh i don't know um it was you know saying one thing and meaning another yeah you know well you mentioned blackball what gave you that impression i heard it from i think it was dean thomas told me that sucks. Let, let me yeah, let me tell get, me about it. Yeah. yeah. Let, let me take you back in the ring for a minute, though, or in the octagon. There was Anderson Silva the best guy you faced, like uh, across the board. Is it, it didn't how? feel like it? It felt just like this guy doesn't hit that hard. Like I could probably beat this guy. I'm winning this round, and then the fight's over. You know, he just landed the perfect shot. Uh, that's how it felt. He didn't feel like. Oh, he's so good. You know, that's what I hear from other people too. He kind of lures you into feeling comfortable and then the fight's over. He takes you out with something. Um, so in terms of feeling this guy's really freaking good, I felt like that with Machida. And in terms of like, this guy's got a lot of potential to be a really good. I felt like that with Jones, like, wow, <laughs> like, this kid is man got some athletic gifts on him. Like he's going to be good. Yeah. All right, so I, I, do you have a good relationship with Bellator now? 
Like, not, I mean, not a bad one. Nothing ever happened. They just never kept their word. Like when I went in for the Tito fight, I was like, you know, I want a job out of this. I'll sell this fight, but like, I want something more than just the fight. And oh yes, we will. Spike TV loves you. Oh, we can't wait to have you on. We'll let you. I didn't get anything in writing and they just buttered me up with all this, how much Spike loves me and how much, you know, you know, I sell this fight and I'll be rewarded type of shit. So I do. And no, they never cut their end of the bargain. They never got any more work out of them. All right. So Stefan, I'm, I'm going to be very direct with you in regards to this. When we saw your promo with uh, Justin McCulley coming out as like a masked guy, and there was like a promo between you and Tito being cut and Coker was in the ring. I swore on my child's life that Scott Coker was an employee of the UFC because there's nobody in her right mind that would allow something like that to take place. <laughs> I tell me about it, man. It was the complete opposite. Like at the UFC at the UFC, I'd like come to Dana with crazy ideas for entrances and things like that. And he would have nothing of it. You know, oh, uh, he didn't, he didn't like that idea at all. He poo poo it. But with Coker, it was like, um, what do you want for your walkout music? I'm like, well, I want to have the rapper Stitches rapping me out. And he goes, okay. It's like, what? Like, that's a joke. That was a joke. But he was all for it. He's like, do whatever you want. It was kind of like a green light. And then I met right Coker right before we went in there. And McCauley's with me with the mask on. And hey, Scott, I'm Stefan. Good to meet you. And uh, this is my coach right here. And he nods at him and Coker goes, all right. Like <laughs> he had the mask on and everything. And he like just didn't care. He was like, have at it. And I, he looked a little worried at me and I go, don't, don't worry, man. It's going to be a good one. Like in the end, you'll see it's good. Trust me. It's going to be good. You know, this will get some eyeballs. I think that's what I told him. And he goes, okay. I definitely did that. <laughs> okay. I couldn't believe it, man. Like he went, let me do that. And then let me have stitches wrap me out. Like that, that's just like, yeah, it, it just complete opposite of Dana. Now, did, I, uh, uh, did Tito know about all, all that beforehand? Like what God, we saw? No, no way. Oh, okay. Yeah. We, we really like did. I never cared for him. You know, I was cordial to him back in the UFC, but I always thought he was an asshole he put on the I killed Kenny shirt after Shamrock. I'm like, that's really disrespectful. So I was like, someone's got to give him a taste of his own medicine. You know, someone's got to give it back to him. Um, so I always thought, man, if I ever fought him, I'd like, you know, fucking get in his head, get in his head, which I did. You know, I wanted him to really try you to hurt his feelings. Oh, yeah. You yeah, because I wanted him to try to beat me up. My worst nightmare was him just trying to hold me down for dear life and not fight me, you know? So I wanted him to try to kill me. So he, and he did, like, he, he came to fight and we had a good fight, you know? I gave it everything I had and so did he. He hit me with his best punches and, um, you know, I smiled and hit him back. So it was, uh, it was a good fight. And I do respect the, the fight he gave me, you know, hats off to him. He made me dig deep and I know he had to dig deep and it was one of those, uh, you know, similar to the forest fight where we both gave it our all, you know? So, so when you, uh, you know, when you guys were in the ring cutting your promo, it, it, the, I, I think what made it uncomfortable was Jimmy Smith refusing to give up the microphone. <laughs> 
right? What a jerk <laughs> off, you know? I'll get so... it right back. I promise. I promise. Okay. Yeah. Like, I'm just going to go then. Like, fine. Hold on to it the whole time. Like, what a he dork. Did Tito, too. What a dork. Yeah. I was like, that's, you know, like, like you couldn't trust me. Like, I'm going to steal it and run away. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, you're gonna be in your car on the way home, still giving a you know public announcement. I, I uh, know, like, what's he thinking? Like, you just oh, well, they, they taught me in journalism school, journalism 101. Never let it's like, come on, dude. Like, you, you, Stefan, in journalism school, do they ever have a guy that's about to beat up another guy that had a guy with a mask on that used to train <laughs> with the other guy? Did they ever go through that scenario with you, Jimmy? Exactly, exactly. <laughs> And like I haven't done enough like uh, live TV at this point to know what I'm doing. You definitely did, dude. Like you 100% knew how to capture like the moment, um, whether it's like a like a menacing look after a fight, or I mean that in terms of like this was almost like in my opinion like almost like the shock master moment of wrestling for you know for MMA. Um, yeah it's like what do you do like i had the forest fight that really sucked a lot of people into the sport but like you know now i'm fighting tito like how do we get people to start talking about this fight why don't we bring his ex-best friend in the ring and a mask and unmask yeah, what was him, the reason you know? for their split it's called tito's an asshole and he fucks everyone else over so he's just one of many many friends of tito that got screwed over by him that came out and stayed with him in big bear and helped him prepare for fights and then got screwed off and not paid any money that he was promised this is the story of tito's life man he screws everyone over did you uh did you ever what the shocking thing about this fight is tito's repeated grabbing of your shorts in order to get a takedown and control you yeah i could care less like yeah but if they would have stood you guys up after that you know because it was an infraction i think you would have got the nod i mean yeah it is what it is like he he was like the the best tito we had seen in a while you know he had uh got his life together he had just come off a win he was in good shape and that was like the worst me you've probably ever seen i had been on the shelf for two years and and been training and like just really couldn't uh couldn't get it back you know i was i just knew that in training camp i trained as hard as i could and i just felt like i had lost a step and uh wasn't as strong as i used to be so you know it is what it It is is. i hope you got a good payday that that's the end of it i mean it was so how how does that work with the with belcher obviously they brought you in as a former UFC person and, and they pick up people that way. Tito is already on the roster. Makes sense. Two big names. Like, did Justin get a little check from them for that? Or was he doing no. volunteer work? He's no, doing volunteer I, work? I, I, threw, I threw Justin a little money. Okay, you took care of okay, it. with me. Yeah. So, yeah, he trained with me and, you know, was like, uh, provided me company. Like, uh, I, I went out to California and trained with... Uh, Tito's all wrestling coach, Paul Herrera, a lot. So Justin would come with me on those road trips and I'd work with his wrestlers and, you know, uh, you know, just tried to prepare as best as I could for him. How was Paul doing? Good, man. He's a good dude. Yeah. Mm -hmm. He he, he trained me pretty good. He pushed me pretty hard and, 
you know, he, he, I got, you know, I worked about as hard as I could over those three months for being, you know, on the shelf and coming back from dog shit. Uh, so he, he did a good job. Okay. So let, let's, we're going to obviously finish this up. Let me hit you with a couple of questions. Real water. You were sponsored by a, a water company that resulted in you being hospitalized after taking the product. Yeah, dude, I got to stop almost dying, man. That was um, <laughs> last year around the same time around my son's birthday, Halloween. Uh, yeah, real water. It's um, ionized water with a high pH, alkaline ionized water. Um, and it has an antioxidant effect. And it's really good for you. But um, they, they move locations. And the guy making the water didn't know what he was doing. And he put in an extra, like, five gallons of concentrate like an extra whole big five gallon bottle of concentrate you think like this stuff's so concentrated you could take regular water and take a little squirt bottle and do two squirts per eight ounces that's how much it real water is concentrated but you know they got these big thousand gallon tanks that they make for the home delivery and the guy put like an extra five gallon bottle of pure concentrate into the thousand gallon tank and just to give you an idea about like how powerful it is, man, like it poisoned about 70 people. Like there were so many lawsuits. Uh, a couple people died. A lot of pets died. Uh, one guy had to have a liver transplant, you know, dozens of people were hospitalized with liver failure like me. So he really did the number and um, you know, they, they injured a lot of people, killed some with that. Huh. Wow. Yeah, it's wild. Yeah, that was wild. Um, and I didn't North know Star what was happening. Like, I'm, like, peeling over and dialing, falling, losing my balance. And I'm, like, at home, like, my parents are in for my kid's birthday. And I sleep for a day and a half. And my mom's all like, what are you doing? You know, you're ignoring us. And and I'm like, something's not right, you know. And I finally go in there. And, you know, my, uh, um, what were those uh, levels? Was, uh, fuck, was it? Oh, I can't remember. Um, fuck, my levels were just crazy high. Of, like, um, like white blood cells, red blood cells, or yeah. Um, no, it was like, geez. Damn. Either way, either Anyways, way, you knew Wilson's it was water, disease though, huh? is what they thought I had with high levels of those. Uh, and uh, yeah, I didn't. I was there the whole time, and it was like, yeah, you're, you know, like. Uh, you have your liver failure is what you're suffering from and I'm like what the hell you know like I haven't been drinking at all like for years at this point like it just didn't make any sense nothing made sense and then I get out of the hospital and I talk to the um James from Real Water the old guy and he's like yeah he's like we've had a, a bunch of cancellations like 30 cancellations a bunch of people saying they were sick and hospitalized and and I had to do my own investigation work. I went to the real water facility and found the guy who made the water and like, what's going on? You know, like what happened? What happened? And I kept pressing him. He didn't want to tell me. And, and eventually he did like, yeah, well, um, the, the, the meter was, um, they test the water and to show if it has a negative charge and it's called an ORP meter, oxidation reduction potential. And he said he tested the water with the meter and it didn't say it was a, 
uh, negatively charged enough. So he kept adding concentrate. He said he called the owner, like, what do I do? What do I do? Well, add more, add more. He said he was instructed to add more. So he kept pouring more in, kept pouring more in. And I'm like, oh my God, you know, like, like that's probably what's gotten all these people sick. Like how many bottles did you make? And they did like, um, like 85 gallon bottles and went and delivered them off of, uh, off of that, uh, batch that he made and um he actually said he clandestinely went back over his route once he found out people were getting sick and pulled off probably about 30 40 bottles and switched them out with people you know because people just leave those bottles outside you know that's kind of how it works you just switch the bottles out like that he was able to go you know switch another like 30 40 bottles out or else it would even been worse and um, there's a bunch of lawsuits against real water and I'm on one of the lawsuits and I haven't heard anything lately. I'm getting worried. I actually heard they declared bankruptcy and they're like, you know, uh, if that's the case, I don't think, you know, I'm going to get any money out of it, which sucks. You know, you almost die like that. You think you that's your hospital something. bills, you know, I mean, that means but you have to incur them. I mean, that sucks. Yeah, Exactly. Um, all right, well, we're going to do two more questions and we'll get out of here. Um, North Star Combat, you got involved with the independent grind in regards to mixed martial arts. How has your experience been um, doing that? I mean, it's fun. I have a good time calling the fights, get to go up to Minnesota and all, but like we were trying to get on UFC Fight Pass and uh, we put a good show together and hit up the fight pass people and had a talk with them and had a phone conversation and they fucking won't give us a shot. You know, like, uh, the, the one conversation they're like, Oh, well you're Stefan Bonner and you've done a lot for the company. So we're going to take that into consideration. And then we talk again and they're like, no, we're going to pass on you guys because that area of the country, it's all by like uh, geographic locations and, you know, in the Midwest, they're heavy on shows. So that's why they said they can't hmm. give us a shot. So, yeah, you think I'd be able to get on Fight Pass, but nope. And, you know, to close this out, you know, if, if you're comfortable, um, your take on what took place between Joshua Fabia, Diego Sanchez, and obviously the UFC commentating team. Um. Well, I can see why, like, Josh was upset. He was pretty disrespected when he first came out. Like, ooh, Diego left the, the, the you know, Jackson's the best camp ever to train with this guy. Um, and Diego, it must be because he's crazy. Uh, you know, that's got to be it. This guy's taking advantage of him. But, like, I know what it feels like to not be learning anymore, to be going to a gym and no one's really helping you. You're just there to help other guys get ready. You're not learning anything new. Your game's not changing. And then you go somewhere and you feel like, wow, I'm getting some attention. I'm getting taken care of. I'm having people focus on me directly. And, like, that was the thing, man. They weren't really helping Diego out over there at Jackson's, you know. They were just letting him get killed in there. They weren't saying, let's change your style. Let's have you slip your head. Let's have you not get hit as much. It was just like, Diego, go forward and, you know, make it a war. You know, it's pretty much like the advice he was getting. They had kind of given up on him in terms of, like, trying to make him better and help him. You know, the focus was on the younger fighters in there and not on him. And I understand him for feeling that way. So uh, I understand why he went and started training with Josh. This guy's given him all his attention. And like, he was more than just a trainer. Like he really 
you know, would help him out with his recovery and massages and be cooking his meals and like taking care of him and also getting him off. Like, you know, Diego was drinking a lot and, uh, you know, he got him to clean up and sober up and get off the booze and he kind of clean his life up and be more responsible and uh, be a better friend and return calls and kind of be a better parent. So he, he did a lot more than just train Diego. He helped him kind of, you know, be, be a better person. But have that being said, Josh is really abrasive and really like angry. He's got a lot of anger and anger ultimately pushes people away. It's divisive. And he felt disrespected, but uh, by the commentating team, which he totally was, but instead of like handling it in a positive way, he just came out with a lot of anger and anger begets anger. And it's not a good look for Diego. And uh, I told Diego, do you really want your legacy to be like a little angry guy talking for you, you know, or, you know, your legacy to be you being Diego and, you know, being sincere with people, people love you, you know, yeah, he's awesome. sincere with people. And, and that's, that's, what's really going to matter in the end, you know? So he was like, yeah, you're right. You know? And uh, Josh eventually um, snapped on Diego's mom and went off on her. And that was when Diego said, "Uh, uh, you know, enough's enough. You don't disrespect my mom. You're fired. And that's when he canned them. And uh, yeah, yeah, and, and Josh wasn't real, real professional with the separation either. Unfortunately, you know, it's when yeah. And then he went around like a like a little kid, like a middle schooler, like breaking up a relationship, and and yeah, talking a bunch of shit about Diego too, and like stupid stuff, like you know, stuff that wasn't even that bad. Like Diego did steroids in high school when he won state in wrestling like come on dude like really you're gonna out him and tell on him for that like that's the worst you could think of you got to go back 20 some years to his fucking high school yeah. like come on dude yeah, yeah dude, with, with all that going on though i mean to me diego was was almost overly loyal to joshua till the end like you know like loyalty is a factor in fighting in many different ways he showed that here and then it, the ufc did get to the point where they fired him how do you feel about that? Like, you know, or how did Diego, if, if you can share, like, how did Diego feel about that? Because that seemed to catch him by surprise. Like, he didn't expect that. Yeah, like, uh, he. I mean, that's a shame, man. That was like his going out fight. And they gave him a good fight. They gave him Cowboy. And what more you could ask for? It's hard to get your way with them. And when you finally do, it's like, what a gift. Like, you know, finally an old guy that's, you know, been knocked out a lot, you know, it's more uh, an old training partner. It's a good story, but uh, uh, yeah, to go and screw that up the way he did, uh, I thought was just unnecessary, unnecessary. And Josh was all proud of himself. Like, Oh, look at that. I got Diego's full payday and win bonus. And he didn't even have to go in there and fight like, Oh, look how great I am. But, um, you know, I know with Diego, it was like, uh, he didn't, he see, you could tell, like, although he seemed like, yeah, it's nice. Yeah. Hey, I got paid full payday, but you know, like deep down underneath it, like, you know, he didn't want to go out like that. No, and it just burns too at that point. Uh, Yeah. Yep. Um, so it just, it's unfortunate, man. I, I really wanted him to have that fight. I thought 
more than anything, he deserved it. And I thought it was just kind of a, a bitch way to play it, how, you know, they like they brought up some medical doubt, like there might be some problem with them that there really wasn't. And uh, they pretty much made a, an incident out of nothing. There was no problems, nothing was wrong. And Diego was healthy and in shape and it was unnecessary. It didn't need to happen. And since he got his show money and win bonus, Josh thought he did him a big solid, which really he didn't. He's very short-sighted. Yeah, it was short-sighted. So Jay Velko. Oh, yeah. Local Jeez, guy here in Chicago. Dude, is, his, is his school still going? Dude, he's got a phenomenal school. Wow. He was so dedicated, man. Like back even uh, when he was a blue belt, purple belt, he was always in the gym. But uh, great guy. Yeah, I know you did yeah. some training there too. He he cornered me for um, Mike Nichols. I think so. Didn't he? I he had to look. Yeah, I think he did. He helped train me for that fight. He might have been the third guy in my corner that night. Mm-hmm. Duke Rufus, Delagrati, and Jay Valco. That's cool. Yeah. Yeah. Good dude, yeah. man. Real good guy. Still carrying yeah. the, the torch. You need to come home to Chicago and kind of. You know, maybe take a look at some, where you came from. I know, man. I miss it. I was supposed to go home before this injury happened where I broke my vertebrae and got the staph infection. I had a trip planned. My plane tickets bought and everything. And uh, the trip fell through, man. And uh, had to fucking had to eat that money, too. Have non-refundable tickets. So he's bringing my son back. So ah, Okay. What's the... Stefan, thank you so much for your time, man. Sincerely appreciate it. My pleasure, guys. Thanks for Take care, buddy. Cool. Take care, easy, man. Good luck with everything. All right. Peace, brother. Well, another Lights Out podcast in the books. Another deep dive. Stefan Bonner, complete. And uh, what, a, what a walk. It's kind of a <laughs> – you know, it's, it's one of those things where the first guy to run through the bushes, although he makes an impact – He's all cut up, bruised up. You know, he's, you know, looking a little worse for the wear. Stefan was that guy. Like, there was many people, obviously, before him, but they never got to the level that he did in terms of notoriety. And it's unfortunate. Like, he's the first guy to kind of run through the bushes, and the money really just – it just wasn't there yet. And um, it seemed like the UFC really, really needed him more than he needed the UFC. Yeah, yeah, you know, especially like, you know, the UFC asked him a couple of favors that are pretty severe favors, you know, you better be comfortable that guys on your side if you're going to overstep the line and ask for, you know, somebody to fight injured or put off a surgery or something like that, because at the end of the day, you're not going to look good when it comes, the, the light gets shined on it, you know, you can't look good in those situations, and it seems like they put him off, you know, for, for a couple of times like that. And he never got the reward. He never got the like, all right, here's the renegotiation. Here's our opening offer. And, you know, you, I can see, Ste- you know, Stefan should have been wowed by their opening offer and, and been happy. You know, that's the kind of yeah. soldier and path he, he had. And they never took care of, you know. So it's interesting to me with lawsuits and things like that going on against the UFC and stuff. Here's a guy not at the pinnacle. 
But here's no. a guy at base camp four. You know what I mean? Here's a guy who's at, at the real top of the heap. Um, wait, uh, wait, wait, wait. So you're saying he's on this side of the Van Allen belt. He didn't go to the moon. He didn't. I, you know, can any Van Halen rest in peace, please? I don't know what you're talking he, about. He didn't I, cross. He didn't cross. You know, I, the firmament <laughs> to get to the moon. Is that what you're saying? I, I look like he doesn't have a UFC title. He never, you know. But he's a guy that, by virtue of that Hall of Fame fight, <laughs> is on everyone's mind, at, especially at that time. And they owe, they do owe him, like the part of the UFC becoming a household name kind of thing, he does have he a part of, does have a part in that, you know? Yeah. And that the reward never came, the real reward never came. It, it shows you that maybe there is something to the lawsuit and to the UFC's, you know, wager, uh, wage uh, spread that doesn't really function well or that is, you know, abusive. Well, the way what I took from this, obviously, I agree with you. There's nothing one can argue with what you said. But man, Joe Silva, now, I mean, people kind of talk about him. But man, ever since that Matt Sarah interview, like you see, you hear Drew Fickett, what Drew is could be an exception to the rule where Joe may have been correct, but like Gerald Harris. Like, it's, it's a reoccurring theme. And even Stefan Bonner, who you just said, carried the UFC, where he's like, yeah, no, he Joe didn't like me. And, you know, and it, the only reason he's saying that is, by the way, Joe talked to him. And um, next time we get Matt Sarah on, next time we get Matt Sarah on, I'm going to ask a question in regards to Joe Silva, like more than in the past. Because it's it, it just it keeps coming to the top. And being a matchmaker... It's not an easy spot. Everyone's going to be mad at you at one point or another. I think it's just the way you handle yourself or how you present things. And I think maybe Joe is a little lacking in that. Well, I think the other part of it is, is a subtle thing about matchmaking is that both guys, you know, part, the number one thing I say is that you got to make both guys comfortable. You may think yeah. one guy is going to kill the other guy, but as long as the other guy thinks he's got a chance, you've done a good job. You know, make it a fair playing field. That has to do with how you run your organization a lot and stuff like that. Yeah, but, but number two is that you're the boss. Yeah. The matchmaker's the boss. They, the fighters do have to know that that if the opponent switches, they're going to get an opponent switch. You know, if the money's negotiated already, then, you know, asking for no money is not that you, you're, you're facing somebody who does have to say no, and then it's all in how you do it. And, you know, there are, you know, there are a lot of stories beginning to add up about uh, like a, but Joe you know, Riggs. Yeah, get Joe Riggs. It's not even just just I think Joe's also a reflection of Dana. And I do think that you know it's like it's like kids with guns. It's like they it's like uh, dealing with 15-year-olds in in terms of they Dana wants to be right, and the other guy's gotta be quiet and a reflection of that, but they also are very dangerous in that they execute you know, business and, and at a very high level and, you know, are not real open to competition and things like that. So it's interesting, but I think, I think Joe is a guy that you but never Joe got Silver to see. Joe Riggs? Because Joe I agree with, with Joe Riggs, like he, 
I mean, he gave several examples of issues with with Joe Silva. Yeah. Yeah. yeah you know, and a lot of it is attitude and, 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 you know, putting people down and stuff. And like I said, they do have to know you're the boss. It's just in how you do it. All right. So, ladies and gentlemen, I could have talked Joe Riggs into taking that Anderson Silva fight without another fight. And he would have loved me still. But that's just me. You know, it's just kind of the way you present it. Yeah, no, I agree. I agree. You know, it's, I mean, it's the package. You know what I mean? It's, that's it. You get, sometimes you got to put a nice little bow on it. Other times you, you, you hand it as is. Um, ladies and gentlemen, February 5th, I'm in Tampa, Florida. We also have a promo code for betdsi.eu. When you use the promo code lights out, you get 50% of your cash deposit up to a thousand dollars. If you like to gamble, it, we, we get a little bit of a piece of that as well. Please, by all means, you're helping the show. And if you guys know how to work Instagram, you're good on social media. We need help. Please contact us. We'd appreciate it. Thank you. And we hope you enjoyed that episode. Thanks to Stefan. Definitely stepped up to the plate and uh, we enjoyed it. Good luck with everything you do. American Psycho. Check out the full interview on iTunes, Spotify, and all major podcast platforms.